You're listening to Chris Scott on FM 105, Down Community Radio. You're listening to my granddad on FM 105. Welcome to the Chris Scott Show on FM 105, Down Community Radio. Tonight we are marking tomorrow's Armistice Day with a special programme centering on a local soldier, William Samuel Montgomery born 5th of November 1893 and passed tragically on the 17th of November 1916 as a result of wounds received during the Battle of the Somme. I'm joined by Killalea's Austin Cheevers who works at the Somme Museum. Uh, he is an absolute wealth on the knowledge of World War One. Readings tonight are by a friend of the show Michelle Dorans from Dorans Academy of Speech and Drama and thank you for that Michelle. Castlewell and studio players return with their second edition in the second series of Jonathan No Middle Name Jackson, written by Anthony McFadden towards the end of the programme tonight. Looking forward to catching up with them later. Without further ado, it's over to Killalay First Presbyterian Church Graveyard, where I join Austin Cheevers at the graveside of the late William Samuel Montgomery. Standing in the surroundings of the First Presbyterian Church in Killalay, I'm talking to Austin Cheevers this evening. Welcome, Austin. Welcome, Chris. Austin, I don't know how to introduce you. Uh, I would put you down as a local historian uh, in the military field and, and maybe even beyond that. Uh, and you also, I believe, work at the Saw Museum as well. That's correct. I uh, work at the Saw Museum now four to five years. Austin, I brought you here today uh, and we're now standing beside a headstone and the grave of the burial place of William Samuel Montgomery, who was born... 128 years ago on Guy Fawkes Day on the 5th of November 1893 and there is a story here. 534 Rifleman W. Montgomery Royal Irish Rifles 17th of November 1916 Age 24 Whether we live or die we are the Lords. November is quite a poignant time for the Montgomery family. As I say, William Samuel Montgomery was born 128 years ago, and he passed in November as well. Austin, I brought you here to talk about this man. I've done some research myself, uh, and and the family were a local family here. Tell me what you know. Well, William uh, would have been a farm labourer working out by Valley McCromwell. According to records, Austin, that we have, I mean, we can go back through old census records, as you know, 1901 and 1911, which is a brilliant way, I think, of tracking people, but... William himself was the son of William Montgomery and Elizabeth Robinson. And William Sr. was a labourer and Elizabeth uh, obviously looked after the house, some of the townlands here outside the town. They had eight children according to the census, which we've clarified in the records, uh, the birth, deaths and marriages records. And six of them were still alive in 1911, which is quite a common thing in those days. So Annie, Sarah, Mariah, James, William, Samuel, Thomas, John, George were all children of the said... Now, this man lived in a, on a farm, I would assume, and for some reason decided to become a soldier. A common theme in those days? Yeah, the uh, the young men who would have worked on farms, they would have been well-built young men, fit and strong, so they would have uh, probably veered to the 16th Battalion, the Royal Irish Rifles, who were the pioneers, uh, the second county down volunteers. They were the guys who would have dug trenches and... Uh, uh, built roads and railways but their uh, collar on their collar there would have been a pick 
and a rifle, a badge with a pick and a rifle on it, and that meant that they had to fight as well. So a lot of the young farm labourers would have probably veered towards the 16th Battalion. In those days, you know, when you joined the army, did you have a choice then? So were you going direct to that recruiting office for that particular uh, you know, for those South Downs or whatever they were called, and you know, did you have a choice? For a lot of the country lads and the the, the county down men, a lot of them, the county down men would have also veered towards the 13th Royal Irish Rifles, uh, the first county down volunteers. Antrim men would have went with the 12th Battalion, the Royal Irish Rifles. Lisburn men, they would have been the 10th Royal Irish Rifles. Uh, uh, up in Belfast there would have been lots of different uh, recruiting offices some men just turned the corner and walked in and joined up but a lot of the men would have joined up with their mates uh, with their friends all going together uh, to join up There was a lot of propaganda in those days I would have thought and the posters were out and your country needs you and so on Was money an incentive as well perhaps? Oh, money was a big incentive for a lot of these men For a lot of them they... Uh, a lot of these men, even the fact that in the British Army you're going to get three meals in a day, that could have been a big incentive for them because uh, some of these men would be lucky to be uh, getting one meal in a day. So uh, money was a big factor because men had to feed families as well. A lot of the men, uh, the money was taken off them, uh, the married men, and would have been sent to the waves uh, with the families and the, uh, the soldier at the front, he would have had a few shillings to get by on. But the army made sure that the, the, the waves and, and kids got their money. So William Samuel would have left uh, his townland uh, just out to the north of us here. Where would he probably have went to even enlist? Probably would have went, got a train up to Belfast and then a train to Lurgan to maybe join the... the uh, to join up uh, with the 16th Battalion. Belfast Newsletter, Friday the 8th of January, 1915, Lurgan. Visit to Brownlow House, stirring address to troops. Yesterday afternoon, Sir Edward Carson paid a visit to Brownlow House, Lurgan, the headquarters of the 16th Battalion Royal Irish Rifles, 2nd Battalion County Down Volunteers. The men of the battalion, to the number of 600, were out on a route march at the time of Sir Edward's arrival, and on their return they were drawn up in companies in front of the terrace facing the mansion from which position Sir Edward, addressing them, said it was a source of the greatest gratification to him to see them turn out that afternoon. He looked upon himself as a personal friend to all who joined the volunteer movement, and subsequently Lord Kitchener's army, for he had been identified with the volunteer movement from its inception, and he had seen the way in which the men composing it had rallied to the flag when they recognised that their country and empire were in danger. Was there anything else in the recruiting campaign that was unusual you ever came across in this area? Well, there there was a case where uh, uh, there was a, a band marching band of soldiers who paraded uh, up from Newry, done a, a walk from Newry right up through the Bangor and uh, they would have been trying to recruit men to join the 16th Royal Irish Rifles at that time, going through all the little towns uh, and villages uh, on the way up to Bangor. So William Samuel may well have seen something like that and, uh, and joined up as many other men did. Belfast Newsletter, Tuesday the 10th of February 1915.
16th Battalion, RIR Recruiting March Yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, 150 non-commissioned officers and men left Brownlow House, Lurgan, the headquarters of the 16th Battalion Royal Irish Rifles, Pioneers, and started on a recruiting march through County Down, the first stopping place being Dromore. The men were headed by the Piper's Band of the battalion under Pipe Sergeant Major McLeod and were followed by two transport wagons bearing their kit and the motor ambulance given by the people of Newry and District. Large crowds accompanied the men to the outskirts of the town where they were given a hearty send-off. When you went into a recruiting office, I take it they're going to take your weight and height and measurements and things. That was probably a common thing and maybe if you had some sort of ailments, would they highlight it, things like that? Yeah, you would have been uh, tested for your uh, eyesight. Uh, you would have been tested. Uh, your, your height would have been measured. You had to be five foot three to get into the army. I actually uh, researched a young soldier, and he was only five foot one and a half, and he joined up uh, a week uh, after the war had started. So he got in uh, right away when he shouldn't have, and. Uh, the recruiting sergeant, he would have been given uh, a half a crown for a, a, every man that he could get uh, recruited. So it was always within his interest to get men uh, uh, in through the door and get them signed up. When, they're, when they actually are recruited, if we're looking back now, and it's something that you'll know from your background up in the museum there, if I try to research someone like w- William Montgomery here, what sort of records are available then for enlistment? The metal index card w- would be... Uh, on Ancestry Online, and uh, that was probably the first thing I would look for is the medal index card, and then from there you would go to the medal service awards, and uh, we also down in the museum we have the uh, records of the Ulster uh, Volunteer Patriotic Fund. We are the only ones in the world that have these records. There's over 17,000 records of men who, when they come back from the war, who asked for monetary help uh, for various reasons, unemployment, uh, maybe wanting to emigrate to another country or something like that. Uh, So uh, these records are very good for me doing research. And something that we we would have access to then, then Austin? Well, no, these records would... You would have to go through uh, us at the Saw Museum because uh, uh, we have to check them because some uh, uh, nowadays they would call it data protection that uh, some things may be put on it that people maybe didn't realise about their uh, ancestors. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you can open cans of worms then, basically. You're talking there about the, the, the Ulster Volunteer Force Patriotic Fund, and something whenever I was doing research for this, so we're talking 1916, when William finally succumbed um, to his injuries, but in 1916, in the village here, it seemed to be like normal life. People just got on with things. Yeah, well, they had no choice. The, the life had to go on. Uh, the war was being fought far away from home and uh, people had to eat, so people had to work and get, get on with their lives. So meanwhile, the young guys were out, uh, out in the front, but you know, I looked at events here in the, in the village. So in February 1916, they were looking at an assistant teacher in the school, national school, just mm-hmm. something that was going on in Narry Street. Uh, a new motor service started here in the village as well. Simpson started in Cross Street and they were taking buses up. The, so life was just going on as normal. Social here in the Second Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. Um, they were looking, the Kill Show went ahead in July. You know, see, agriculture shows, village life was still continuing. Yeah. But 
interestingly enough, they were very aware of what was going on in the battlefields because, as you rightly said about the um, the UVF Patriotic Fund, Strigley Mills donated, I think Martin donated about £25 to that, even in 1916. Mm-hmm. And other things that you might, might be able to fill us in on, the British, Russian and Belgian Red Cross Society, the Ulster Women's Gift Fund, all these guilds were going in, in the town as well. Yeah, they, they would have been going to try and help uh, out the, the, the fighting soldiers and the families at home. The other amazing research material we have are the old newspapers. Um, uh, uh, do you guys look at that in, in, in the museum then? Do you have access to that? Yeah, we would be looking at that, uh, at the local newspapers. Uh, I would also go into the Down Recorder, into the Kill La- or Down Patrick Library and research the Down Recorder a lot to find out uh, what was going on. I was lucky enough to be given the records by Elsie Burner, who was one of the Sloan History Group, who gave me all the records that she had went and sat and sifted through four to four odd years of uh, records, and uh, so she gave me them. So I'm well pleased uh, that I can look up, which tells you about a soldier coming home on leave or uh, soldiers who passed away and uh, soldiers who were wounded. That's specifically for Killalay here, then, those records, yeah? Uh, Yep, yep. If I had been a member of this family, um, probably the only communication then, it wasn't going to be email or phones or anything like that, it was going to be letters home. Yeah, the postal service was uh, very good in the First World War. You could uh, send a cake uh, through the post and uh, they they probably got it within a a few days. Uh, The postal service was excellent uh, uh, during the First World War. But, of course, families sometimes got those letters that came in, the postman delivered, or I don't know how they were delivered to the families, where someone was missing, wounded, or, in fact, killed. Yeah, the postman, he would have delivered the, the envelope to say that the soldier was uh, either killed or else uh, he was missing, believed uh, a prisoner. But then within a, a space of time, if they didn't hear back from uh, uh, the German records, uh, that the soldier was probably killed and his body wasn't uh, found again. In this particular instance, when William w- w- left here, uh, what, 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 you know, that regiment, where were they going to? or What, what was their sort of track across Britain into, into Europe then? Uh, in the summer of 15, they, they headed over from uh, Belfast. The Ulster Division actually marched through Belfast uh, and down past the City Hall and the men would have been then getting ready uh, to get on the boats uh, to head over to Sussex uh, for uh, more training. And they stayed uh, in uh, the village of Seaford. This village, the, the villagers in Seaford were uh, a bit wary of all these Irishmen uh, arriving down on them. But uh, before uh, they had le- they actually left to go over to France, uh, the villagers had great uh, respect for uh, the Ulster men who, who came over. And uh, it would have been early October then, uh, 1915, when the Ulster Division uh, started moving uh, over to France. For a young fella, you know, leaving the fields here in County Down and heading across England, that's a big adventure in itself, but they actually had France. And then they'd be lugging about all that equipment that they might have had. I mean, what, 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 he ha- what had he around him at that stage? He probably had about £60 pound weight on, uh, on his back and, of course, his rifle and... Uh, then it would be marching. Once they got off the boats, they would be getting lined up, and a lot of them would be maybe trains up and t- towards near the battlefield, and then it would be marching, foot slogging the whole way after that. So uh, 
they 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 didn't get it easy, and then they probably ended up sleeping in barns on the on the way. Sometimes they just had to roll themselves up in a an oil skin or ground sheet and lie outside in the rain. They, they had no choice in the matter. So uh, it would have been a different life entirely for a young uh, young lad from uh, County Down. Would William and, and, and his mates necessarily have known about what was round the corner of the Battle of the Somme? You know, what, what information do you think they would have been fed? Or would you be aware of any of that? They would know once they got there that at some stage down the line there was gonna they were gonna go into battle, and I would say after maybe a month or two round the the, the trenches and that there they would start to get the the feel of the place and uh, eventually word would come out. It wasn't it wasn't a very well kept secret that the battle of some was going to happen. What they would have knew was the, the big push, uh, and eventually. Uh, they were getting geared up they knew uh, because of the, the the training they would have done and once the big bombardment started uh, and it lasted a full week they knew it was going to happen but of course the germans they knew exactly uh, the same and the germans at uh, at Thiepfall, they they were sitting under 30 feet of, of ground and uh, concrete bunkers and while the men in Thiepfall wood were their only shelter would have been a dugout, uh, dug a few feet under the ground and uh, some sandbags over the top. That would have been their uh, only means of defence. So the Germans were waiting on the attack. They did not attack Thiepfall Wood that day. They, uh, or leading up to it, they weren't interested. All They sat on top of the hill and said, right, you come to us. And that's, that's exactly what happened then. Belfast Newsletter. Monday the 15th of November, 1915. An officer of the 16th, 2nd County Down Volunteers Royal Irish Rifles, Pioneers, writing from Ginger Hill in France, to a Lurgan friend says, This has been our address for some weeks past, and likely to be for several to come. The hill got its name through a colonel of the Royal Engineers, who came over to see our work, and was so much impressed with it that he said quite a lot of ginger, i.e. energy, had been put into it. Although we have only been here for a short time, we have so altered the surrounding country that it is practically one huge fieldwork and includes fire, support and reserve trenches, honeycombed by dugouts, bomb stores and everything essential to a thoroughly prepared front line. Ginger Hill is now a veritable stronghold and its dugouts have received their name, Killalay Castle, called after the historic old building of that name in County Down. I think you referred earlier to William's battalion being the pioneers. Was that a special unit or what? why were they called that? Well, the pioneers, they were the guys who, uh, as I said, they, they dug the trenches and, and, and the dugouts and... Uh, the roads and bridges and that they they worked all on that and uh, but again they say they they had to fight as well and as you rightly said they had to fight as well and that's probably where the beginning for the end of William Montgomery happened then do you know the story then exactly what happened to this man well I do know this the 16th Royal Irish Rifles uh, they were behind the Enniskillens and the 14th uh, Royal Irish Rifles in, in Thiepfall Wood on the day of the attack. 
they would have been attacking up the hill and probably taken fire from uh, the right-hand side, which would have been uh, from Thiepval village, which was a fortress. And so uh, what had happened really was the Ulster Division, they, they got hit by enfilading fire. Both divisions on either side of the Ulster Division failed on the day to get anywhere in their attack so the Germans swung everything round and they started hitting the Ulster men uh, in the sides and enfilading fire plus they were getting hit uh, from the front as well. At one stage uh, British artillery was supposed to have fallen short and uh, so at one time we were supposed to be getting hit uh, four, four ways. Northern Wake, Monday the 10th of July 1916. The Daily Mail publishes the following stirring story. Two men under me, said a wounded officer, were from Belfast. They belonged to the original Ulster Volunteer Field Force and at the outset of the war they enlisted for active service. Overnight we lay in some trenches just inside our front lines while over us screamed the most thunderous bombardment of all history, the culminating outburst of five days of the battering of the German land. Early in the morning, the advance began. Away went the Irishmen, who had the task of clearing the first three trenches. Our time came in due course, and we moved into Thiefval Wood, which served as some cover for the troops in advance of us. Directly we arrived, they moved on, and we watched their splendid intrepidity in no man's land as they faced a whistling torrent of German machine gun fire augmented by bursting shells. It seemed an impossible thing to pass, that fire-blaze zone, but they did it. William uh, was hit by by a shrapnel in his chest, and uh, he lay for two or three hours, in, in a shell hole uh, or in the trench sorry and uh, his mate had come along and took the tunic took his tunic off and uh, to try and help him with his wounds and he then uh, couldn't get the tunic back on uh, with him and William said in a letter back home to his sister that he was very cold and he ended up with pneumonia when he was in uh, in the hospital in Warncliffe in uh, England uh, that he had taken pneumonia and but he had, he was able to, to to get through that part of it uh, but he had talked to his sister about the shrapnel being embedded in his uh, chest and uh, that he sent her the pieces pieces of shrapnel with uh, the bits of his tunic and shirt that were also embedded in his chest. He also talked about that uh, he had seen his medical reports and that they had uh, shifted his heart, lifted his heart over uh, so that they could get at uh, the shrapnel uh, that was uh, in his lungs at the time. That's amazing. That 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 record has been preserved then because that's quite detailed, and and, and not a lot of families have those sort of details, Austin. Um, and how did you come across that? It was through a friend, uh, Peter Moore. It, they he has uh, the letter, so we were able to see it then, and uh, we have uh, copies of it. And very uh, poignant letter uh, it is too. He also talked about. Uh, getting his sister to send him some soda bread and uh, potato bread and wheaten and he also says to send, her, send him some buttermilk uh, 
because he couldn't get good buttermilk in England and he said the sour, the buttermilk, the better. I am breaking my neck for a good drink of buttermilk, but it can't be got here. I wonder could you send me a pint anyway. The sour it would be, the better. I would also like a little bread. Not that I don't get enough, but I am longing for a change. About as much as would make a good tightener for a healthy man will be abundance. Say one small piece of soda, one potato oaten, one slim, one wheaten. Please don't put any currants in, as I don't think they agree with me. If you can at all, please send this little lot, the buttermilk anyhow, and I will be obliged to you for ever. I will draw to a close, and excuse me for so much trouble, but I want you to do your best, and try and send the milk. I will say goodbye, and best love to all, hoping baby is well. Lance Corporal William Montgomery, Warncliffe War Hospital, Sheffield. You know, rewinding there, that you're coming from a battlefield and then you're being... How, how do you get over to England then? They're shipped back then? So you're in agony and you're being shipped back over to Sheffield, I think he went to? Yeah, it was a Warncliffe Hospital in, in Sheffield. They would have started off... Uh, Lana, they would have picked him up from uh, whatever trench or shell hole he was in, and then he would have take, been taken down probably to uh, a field hospital, then further on down to casualty clearing stations, and then on to uh, probably onto a boat uh, to head over to England. And uh, there would have been lots of boats heading uh, after the 1st of July. Uh, so that's how he probably would have ended up. And, and, and obviously the family are going to know quite quickly, but what I noticed in the papers, probably by the time his name got into the papers being wounded, probably was about mid-July before it was published here in the Northern Wig and the, the telly and the newsletter then. Yeah. Northern Wig, Saturday the 29th of July, 1916. 2,546 names, 363 deaths. Last night's casualty lists. Royal Irish Rifles, Wounded, W. Montgomery, 534, Lance Corporal Killalay. At the start, uh, it was supposed to be claimed as a big victory, but then the next thing, the uh, casualty list started to appear in newspapers, and uh, word was getting round, round word of mouth that such and such was uh, missing and such and such was dead. Uh, so it would have been a, a very black time for the people uh, uh, in Ulster. It worked out then on that one day that we had over five and a half thousand casualties. The uh, 13th Royal Irish Division had over 500 casualties on that day. And the uh, the 11th Battalion, who were their next door neighbours on the in the attack, they had also about 500 odd casualties. Uh, casualties that day too so eventually they amalgamated these two battalions because uh, they to make up the uh, the numbers again and they were being fired on from the opposite side uh, from where uh, William would have been uh, fired upon they were being fired over from the other side of the uh, the Ankara uh, river the Germans were able to swing their machine guns around uh, and start attacking then the guys, the 13th Royal Irish Rifles, uh, the 11th, uh, on the left flank, they were, they started to uh, attack them, and uh, they were hit by weathering, weathering fire, and uh, where the 11th Battalion uh, attacked, they actually attacked, attacked up towards where the Ulster Tower now sits. Uh, it was in 2013 when the workmen were 
uh, repairing widening the roads ready for the big commemorations in 2014 they they actually found three soldiers uh, along the stretch of, the, of road and they found one right at the gates of the Ulster Tower and he had a Royal Irish Rifles uh, uh, badges and so that they uh, and they surmised that he was in the 11th Battalion because that is exactly that. That's the way they were attacking. But the 13th Battalion, who were next door to them on the left, they were because of the fire. They were pushed in uh, to the 11th Battalion uh, to trying to get away uh, from the, the the withering fire. And a lot of the men lay in the sunken road as well. And uh, I always thought the sunken road would have been like a a place of refuge for men. Uh, to lie in because there were big banks eight uh, feet high on each side of it but I took a tour in the Thiepfall Wood one time and there was an elderly man from Donegal there and he told me that his father told him about being in the sunken road uh, that day and he said that it was absolute hell with the fire, the machine gun fire coming uh, at both sides at the, at the men and the shell fire as well that's amazing, and you have some knowledge there. Of course, you've been out there. You, you've stayed in the the tower itself, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I helped out for a, a, a few months in 2019, and uh, it was a, a very well. It was a great honour for me to, to be able to do it. Yeah. You, you said there about those three bodies that have been found, um, and probably unidentifiable then, because somebody had told me that sometimes the little um, ID that they would have had weren't actually made up to scratch that, that some of them had to have private ones made up who would survive but a lot of the 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 regular issued ones didn't survive you know they rotted away out of, out of the three soldiers that were found uh, in 2013 uh one who was found uh, was a cambridge cambridgeshire soldier and he was found just at the end of the boundary wall at the at the tower but the third soldier found was found at the end of Connaught Cemetery in the lane that leads down into Thiepval Wood. And uh, he was called David Harkness Blakey. And we know David because he, uh, I think he had a, a homemade bracelet with his name on it. The dog tags that the, the, the soldiers uh, would have had in the First World War were made from a type of fibre and they rotted away. So that's one of the reasons why there's so many unknown uh, soldiers, but that was how they were able to find out uh, that David Harkness Blakey was uh, the soldier, and he was actually an Englishman who who uh, answered an ad in his local paper. He, he came from Felling and Town and Weir in uh, North uh, East England, and he uh, answered a call to for Irish or for Englishmen to join an Irish regiment, and he joined the uh, Enniskillen Fusiliers, Eleventh Battalion. And he uh, would have went to Finner Camp in Donegal mm-hmm. and then went over uh, with uh, the Ulster Division in October 15. And he was killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. There was actually a relative of David who has walked up and down that lane many a time. And he actually has walked out over where David had been lying. That's incredible. Uh, and the three soldiers are now buried in Connaught Cemetery, which is just outside Thiepfall Wood. Uh, they're, they're buried there, and it's very apt that they're side by side because they weren't all that far away from each other when uh, when, they, when they died. A different story here for William Samuel Montgomery, of course, because uh, he then went 
to go for an operation, I believe, on the shrapnel uh, in Sheffield. Uh, and tell us then what happened then, Austin. Well, he, he had, I think he had a, a, a couple of operations, and then on the 17th of November, uh, he went for an operation and he uh, succumbed to his wounds then uh, that day. So that was uh, that was uh, William uh, had, had was gone, and then his uh, father and his uncle they came over uh, to England and uh, collected his body and bring it back to Calais for for burial. Larne Times, Saturday, the second of December, nineteen sixteen. Corporal W. S. Montgomery, Royal Irish Rifles eldest son of Mr. W. Montgomery Killalay, wounded in the 6th of July, has succumbed to his injuries in Sheffield. He was buried in Killalay during the week with military honours. Fourth of March, 1916. In the event of my death, I give the whole of my property and effects to my father, William Montgomery, Toy, County Down. W. Montgomery, Lance Corporal, Number 534, 16th Battalion, RIR. I just imagine the journey the father and the uncle would have had to have taken and what was going through their head at that time once they didn't even try to get to Sheffield and bring the remains back. It must have been terrible for a father to be uh, going to collect his son's body and, and bring it and it, it, as you say it would not have been an easy journey uh, to, to make anyway and but to have the added uh, horror of bringing your your own uh, son young son back home and to be buried here at first Killalay presbyterian church and there's a slight i'll not say a twist to the tale but the minister at that time was the reverend mccleary isn't that right who would have carried out the service yeah the reverend jr mccleary he carried out the service because the the um, the minister who would have been here was uh, ill, and so uh, the Reverend J.R. McCleary carried out the service, and he had actually lost his son on the first day of uh, the Battle of the Somme, uh, James Moore McCleary, and uh, he was only a, a young 21-year-old sergeant, uh, very young to be a sergeant, but uh, it must have been uh, hard for the, the Reverend McCleary to be standing uh, officiating at a, at a, 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 a funeral of, of another young man thinking probably of his own son at the same time. It's an incredible story and I mean literally yards from this headstone there's the McCleary headstone which he references his own son. Yeah, yeah his son's mentioned on that uh, on the, the headstone. Belfast Telegraph, Wednesday the 19th of July, 1916. Sergeant James Moore McCleary, 1st County Down Volunteers, killed, was son of Reverend John R. McCleary, Killalay. He was educated at Armagh Royal School and was an apprentice manager in Shrigley Spinning Mill, Killalay, at the outbreak of the war. He joined the Ulster Division in September 1914. Lieutenant Fullerton, his platoon officer, with whom he had returned to the front recently after brief leave, has furnished the relatives with the circumstances under which Sergeant McCleary's fate overtook him. His letter throwing a vivid light 
on the desperate gallantry which animate every man of the division on the fateful first. Only twelve of the company were left when Lieutenant Fullerton's men reached the German trenches, and this handful of fearless Ulster men were then cut off from the rest of the division. For six hours they occupied the position so dearly won, but when their bombs ran out they were helpless. By this time there were but the officer, Sergeant McCleary, and three men left, and the lieutenant sent the four back to a sunken road halfway between the opposing trenches. The little remnant reached the road, where they became anxious for their officer. The sergeant sent some of the men back to look for him, and the officer and these men had just reached the sunken road when a shell exploded beside McCleary, killing him instantly. It was a hard fate thus to overtake him after surviving the perils of the great charge in which the men fell by the score and the other imminent dangers of the day. The late sergeant, who in his school days was a splendid footballer and cricketer, was a man of sterling character, beloved by his comrades and by all who knew him. Austin, you are a mind of information. We could talk all day here uh, and we'll sort of just broad brush across things. You know, as we now walk out through this graveyard, you have relatives also buried here. And I have no doubt, Austin, there are stories that we don't know anything about. Over here, my uh, great-grandfather, Robert Fee, is buried here. He was in the same battalion as William Montgomery and uh, he was badly wounded in the Battle of uh, Langemark and was left with shrapnel uh, embedded in his body the rest of his life and his face was badly scarred as well. My aunt told me that he, he, in later life he always had a woolen blanket uh, over him, uh, sat by the range, but he says that he always felt the cold. Uh, if he went out for a walk around the shore, he always had this woolen blanket and he says that he could feel the cold of the trenches uh, 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 as well. He died in uh, 1955. My grandfather is buried uh, in here as well. Granda was born 1884. He would have been 30 year old when war broke out. When I was about 17 year old I went down to his house one day and I said to him, Granda, what, what did you do in the war? And uh, He told me about being at, at the Somme and being at uh, a place called Messines Ridge and uh, Passchendaele. And I came up to the local library and looked up the names and that got me hooked then on, on uh, anything to do with the First World War. And uh, my granda went through the whole lot uh, without a scratch. And the local newspaper done an article on him one time. And the, the reporter had said to him, uh, Davy, how come you went through without hardly a cut? And my granda, who was a very jokey wee man, very uh, funny wee man, he says, uh, I could run that fast the Germans couldn't catch me. <laughs> He died on New, uh, New Year's Eve 1983 and uh, he was just a few months off his 100th birthday. Great respect for him. Austin, can I thank you so much? Uh, and it's lovely to meet someone who has such an interest, preserve those stories and is willing to pass them on. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, having the interview. I've enjoyed talking to you. Well, how? 
Piccolo Junction and the green fields of France. Thanks again to Austin Cheevers for taking the time out to speak to me and also to Michelle Dorans from Dorans Academy of Speech and Drama for the readings. Join me again next week in conversation with the Army Cadets to find out what's going on in that organisation. I'll be paying a visit to the Killalay Detachment, so tune in next week to find out lots more. Leaving you tonight with the second episode in the second series of Jonathan No Middle Name Jackson, written by Anthony McFadden and performed by the Castle Welland Studio Players. Until next week, stay safe and stay tuned to FM 105 Down Community Radio. Last week, Jonathan, using the gravity-defying and lava-resistant boots, managed to get to the small island in the middle of the lava lake and retrieve the flintstones from Barney's rubble. However, the tourist attraction closed before he could return, and so he had to spend the night on the island, unaware of the lava monster. Jonathan is still sound asleep at six o'clock in the morning, when suddenly... Galoo? What was that? Nothing, Galoop. I definitely heard something. No, you didn't, Galoop. Well, that sounded like something to me. It is just your imagination. Go back to sleep. Uh, No lava monsters here, Galoop. Did you just say lava monster? Oh, no, the cat is how you say out of the bag, Galoop. So are you going to make this easy for me, or do I have to chase you around the island before I can eat you, Galoop? Eat me? I don't mind if I do. No, no, no. I meant you want to eat me. Oui, that is what I normally do, Galoop. Although, if you have taken a lava monster protection tablet, then I would not be able to eat you. Uh, Did you take a tablet? No, I didn't. Oh, good. Well, (laughs) ha-ha. That makes things easier then, doesn't it, Galoop? Um, quick question. Oui? Are you from France by any chance? How did you guess? Uh, and did my stylish beret give it away? Or was it my natural poise and charm? It was the card you just handed me that says, My name is Monsieur Charles Henri Leroy Third, Lava Monster Extraordinaire. Here is part of the Anglo-French Lava Monster Exchange Program to learn how to eat people in English. Be proud that in your death, you are assisting in promoting cultural understanding and acceptance. That is me, uh, Monsieur Charles Henry Leroy III, at your service. Now, if you will stand still for a moment, I will just add a little seasoning and maybe a vegetable or two, and then we can begin. Now, uh, where did I put that salt and pepper, Galoop? Help! Sorry, uh, did you say something? No, not a thing. Help! It uh, sounded very much like you were calling for help, Galoop. No, of course not. Why would I do that? Help! You are, you, you are calling for help. Well, perhaps a little bit, yes. Samantha! Donna! Help! The way you are carrying on, anyone would think you don't want me to eat you. Well, I don't. Help! 
Well, that is rather rude of you. Uh, most people about this stage are quite happy that I, Monsieur Charles Henry Levi III, are eating them. Really? You're telling me that people are happy to have you eat them? Actually, uh, thinking about it, uh, happy is probably the wrong word. Horrified uh, would probably be more fitting, Kalou. Uh, Has anyone ever managed to escape from here before you could eat them? How is anyone going to escape from an island in the middle of the Lake of Lava? It is not as if they have a pair of magical, gravity-defying and lava-resistant boots that could whisk them back to the spot they started from by clicking their heels together three times and saying, There's no place like home. Uh, what? Uh, why would you say that? Uh, that seems a bit of a silly thing to say, really. I just thought it seemed to fit, you know, keeping in with the whole Wizard of Oz theme that we are ripping off. I mean adapting well you are wrong uh, what you have to say is uh, get me away from the lava monster and back to where i started uh, oh dear i have a feeling that i should not have told you that as soon as jonathan says the words the boots lift him off the island and take him back to where he started from out of the jungle samantha and donna appear and after stopping off at the non-existent gift shop cafe to get a coffee and a croissant they make their way to Jonathan. Are you okay, Jonathan? We heard you calling for help. Yeah, a lava monster was going to eat me, but I managed to escape. Do you mean the lava monster that is standing right behind you? Bonjour! <coughs> Please, uh, stop shouting. You are giving me a headache. But you want to eat us? No, no, no. I do not want to eat all of you. I will get fat. I have my figure to think about. No, I, I would just eat him and maybe just a little nibble of you. And uh, your croissant, of course. Galoop? Nothing wrong with sending children out to work. Up the chimneys with them, that's what I say. Uh, if that is who I think it is, uh, I am off. Au revoir, Galoop. Jonathan, what is that? I have no idea, Samantha, but it sounds rather close. Women should be at home. Looking after the house and having children, not working in jobs meant for men. It's coming from over there. Get fined for breaking the law? Ha! Waste of time. A good flogging is the real answer. They won't break the law again after six of the best from a cat or nine tails. Look, Jonathan, something is emerging from the trees. Women with driving license? Ah, it's bad enough that we allowed them to vote without letting them get in behind the wheel of a car. It's a giant man with massive claws and teeth. It's not just a giant man. It's the dinosaur that the cavewoman warned us about. They should never have got rid of the workhouses. They solved a lot of problems in the past. What should we do? He's coming this way. Kids these days, misbehaving all the time. I want, I want. Too much time on their hands, that's the problem. Five years of compulsory national service would sort them out. Discipline, discipline, that's what they need. Quick, hide. Too late, it's seen us. Ha ha, I spy breakfast and the bodgy one looks rather tasty. It's talking about you, Samantha. The cave woman said, the stones would save us from the dinosaur. Quick, Jonathan, say the magic words, but obviously don't really say them because of copyright and mumble it onto your breath. Yabba. Do-do. Nothing's happened. Say it again. With feeling. 
Yabba. Dubba doo. Look, one of the four stones is glowing. Ooh. Yeah, mate, what you want? We need to escape the dinosaur, and the cavewoman said you could help. Also, why do you sound like a woman if you're supposed to be you-know-who? It's my day off. Excuse me, Michael, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, love. Could you also show them how to get out of this time period? I seem to have misplaced the swirly-whirly-wavy thing. I put it down somewhere and just can't remember where. Would never have happened with the old narrator. No problem, love. There's a secret door hidden in the jungle that they can go through. All we have to do is follow that newly laid road over there. Uh, how will we get there? We only have one pair of boots. Easy. We'll use that toy camper van by the lake. The big one that's just appeared. With a bit of quick radio magic. I'll make a life-size model. Somewhere a child is crying over the loss of her grossly disproportionate doll's overpriced toy camper. With the dinosaur only moments behind them, Jonathan, Samantha and the other one climbed into the camper van. Jonathan places the stones in a line on the dashboard. Right, stones, let's rock and roll! With that, the stones begin to glow, and the ultimate environmentally friendly, no actual engine camper van starts moving forward quickly. Look over there. There's a group of models coming out of the jungle between those two trees and are waving at us. Help! Help! We are a group of highly paid models and part-time scientists who are striving to make the world a better place for everyone. Back in July, we were in the middle of a photo shoot for a well-known cornflake brand. When a magical swirly-whirly thing grabbed us and brought us here. Oh no, the dinosaur has seen them and is heading their way. Help! Help! The dinosaur has seen us and he is heading our way. I just said that. Yes, we know. But our lines are quite short, so we added an extra one in by copying you. The cheek of some people. At, At least you get to say your lines by yourself. yourself. We, we have, have to share our lines. One of the models is Kate Moss. We must save her. No can do, I'm afraid. The stones are rolling. Why does that matter? If you'll only take a minute to stop and gather her up on the way. Haven't you heard, love? A rolling stone gathers no moss. The Castlewell and studio players are proud to announce that that joke came forth in the World's Worst Pun Contest 2021. Remind the listeners what we are looking for again as we travel at breakneck speed through this jungle. A special door to help you escape from this period. One that we need to find quickly before it disappears. Or you will be trapped here without hope of rescue. Well, at least until the narrator finds the swirly wavy thing. Over there, I see a red door. Is that it? No, the one we need is black. Couldn't you just paint it black? Normally in situations like this, Time is on my side. And I could do that, but on this occasion, it's not. Watch out for that herd of wild horses as they run across our path. I wish we'd stop for the models. I always wanted to meet Kate Moss. Sorry, love, but that's life. You can't always get what you want. Having squeezed as many Rolling Stone song titles in as he could, 
the writer has Jonathan, Samantha, and what's her name, arrive at the black door. Right. Here you are. What happens now? We have to wait. What for? For the writer to work out what's on the other side before we go through, which, seeing as he decided to make himself a cuppa, could be some time. Maybe he needs a little help, if you know what I mean, narrator. Back in a jiff, talk amongst yourselves. The idea of the door disappearing before we could get here seems a bit of a moot point now, don't you think? Hmm, in hindsight, we could have stopped and got the models after all. Don't suppose they liked being eaten? You never know. Kate may have got away. She's a real fighter, that one. Have you noticed that the narrator stopped saying my name? Well, you did make that comment about her losing the swirly wavy thing. I'm surprised that's all she's done. Just popped out before I could stop myself? Probably not the best thing you could have said. What's the worst that can happen? So she doesn't say my name for a few lines. So what? Hang on. Looks like the writer's back and things will get moving again. Any minute now. What's he doing? Nothing. He's just sitting there staring blankly at the screen. Any sign of Caroline? Nope. And oh, this doesn't look good. What doesn't? He's left the room and taken his mug with him. I hope he doesn't take too long. It's getting dark. Although, sitting here listening to the sounds of the jungle is very relaxing. I think this might be a good time to talk about the elephant in the room. I wouldn't call you an elephant, Samantha. Hippo, perhaps, but never an elephant. I meant Caroline. Well, I have to admit, she's not doing a bad job of narrating. And she does seem to be helping with the story, which benefits everyone. You're right. Maybe I was a bit harsh earlier. Do you mind keeping the noise down? We're trying to have a serious conversation here. It's all right for you. You've got loads of lines. All they give me was this tiny piece. But don't you worry. You just carry on being a main character. And I'll go back to just being background noise. Always the same with these people. Get a bit of power and it goes right to their heads. Davis, they're all the same. Jonathan, when the sketch is over, ask her if she wants to join us for a drink in the pub around the corner. Good idea. In the meantime, what do we do? Mick, do you have any idea how long she will be? No, none at all. In that case, let's spend the night together in the camper and we can figure out what to do in the morning. Hi, are we going to finish the sketch without her? Jonathan, would you mind? Join us next week for another episode of The Amazing Adventures of Jonathan, no middle name, Jackson. In that episode, Maria O'Brien played the narrator, Mark Maidenupney played Jonathan Jackson, Michelle Dorans played Samantha Smallwood, Siobhan Miller played Donna the Druid, Anthony McFadden played the Lava Monster, Mark Hesley played the Jungle Sound, 
Austin Biggerstaff played the dinosaur. Amanda Kearney and Brigida Krosky played the group of models. With Kushler McKibben playing Michael the Stone. The writer was Anthony McFadden. You're listening to Chris Scott on FM 105, Down Community Radio.